Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Africa's a country, um, AIAC Live. Or a sorry, I always mess this up. AIAC Talk. So we're back. This is episode five. I'm Sean Jacobs. I'm uh, the editor of Africa's a country. And with me, I have two uh, I have my co-host, Will Shoki, who is um, our staff writer and based in uh, Johannesburg. Um, and I just want to, oh, I just had a little glitch there. Oh, and you're watching us uh, live on um, Facebook and YouTube. So you can watch us on YouTube. You can also, I know some people are tuning in by Facebook. What I want you to do is if you like what we're talking about, if you have a question, um, you can just uh, write it in, in the comments and the live on YouTube, as well as on Facebook. And um, the producer will put it on the screen. Our producer Antoinette, and uh, we will try to get uh, our guests to answer your questions. So, as I said, Sean Jacobs, I'm hosting the show. This is episode five. Um, my co host, Will Shoki, staff writer based in Joburg. Uh, and with us is um, Saeed Husseini. He's the guy you see in the middle with the earphones on. He has a PhD at the University of Oxford. We always do this to our guests, we embarrass them at the beginning. He's based Thanks. in Lagos, and I, I'm reading this off his Twitter bio. And he studies ideology in Nigerian African politics. And his next project, so we are going to talk about Nigerian politics. But I like also the second part of his bio. It says he, his next project is what's left of the Nigerian left. So we're going to try to like cover both these topics in the next hour. Will shaking his head. He's like excited for this. Um, so first up, though, what we always do when we start out is we we start by asking our guests, and we also contribute to this question. What are you reading right now? And Said, you can, whether it's a book or whether mm. it is an article that you're reading on the web, just what is it that you're reading right now that's occupying your mind right now? Uh, firstly, I should say thanks for having me on the show. I've been following it uh, since it started off. And obviously, I'm a fan of, of uh, your writing, Africa as a country, both of you. Um, you know, so it's a great honor to be on. Uh, yeah, in terms of readings, I've been. And kind of starting out my literature review for the What's Left of the Left project. So um, I've been reading around a few different kind of buckets of topics. Um, and one that's been sort of sparking my interest recent is around Islam and decolonization in, um, in Nigeria and in the Sahel region of West Africa. Um, so actually, I just read an interesting uh, paper from uh, a journal entitled or the paper was entitled Islam and De Decolonization in Africa, the political engagement of a West African Muslim community. And it's by a scholar called Zachary Valentin Wright, uh, who's at Northwestern University. And um, it's quite an interesting paper focused on the life of, uh, well, the political thought actually of a Senegalese um, uh, Sufi Muslim cleric called Sheikh Ibrahim Nias. Uh, and folks who follow Nigeria will Maybe I've encountered Nias um, you know, either directly or just through seeing his stickers on um, like the sort of kick, the rickshaw uh, uh, sort of tiny three-wheeled bikes that uh, people get into as a form of public transportation um, because his photos are kind of ubiquitous in northern Nigeria primarily, but also around the country um, for being this um, sort of symbol of... Um, or various things, you know, as a religious leader. Um, but one of the the things that I've just recently discovered that Nias has represented is actually uh, a kind of Islamic response to, or Islamic sort of version of anti-colonialism. 
Um, so Nias was a big African nationalist and actually was a close uh, kind of friend and even personal sheikh in his own recollection of uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, and he was also a Pan-Africanist and an anti-colonialist and um, had very interesting thoughts about sort of the future of um, the post-colonial nation state. So uh, that's been quite fascinating for me and it sort of opened up a new window of exploration in, the study, in my studies of Nigerian left um, around radical Islam, but not perhaps in the way that we tend to think of it. Um, uh, so kind of radical left Islam. Uh, so that's been a kind of fascinating, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, diversion of reason. Is he, is he having conversations with or influenced by the Sufis in Senegal? In fact, he was a, is a Senegalese, uh, was a Senegalese uh, uh, religious leader. But one thing that I'm learning about Sahel and about um, kind of political thinking and political movements in the Sahel is that they often cut across, uh, you know, the countries in that region in the sort of Sahara uh, region. So even though he was primarily based in, in uh, Senegal, he was in conversation with political leaders you know, in Niger, Chad, in Northern Nigeria, um, and it was kind of an influential actor in the period, the sort of high period of anti-colonial politics. Um, so, you know, the fact that he's kind of remembered as a personal friend and sheikh to Kwame Nkrumah as well, uh, was quite a striking uh, kind of fact for me in thinking through the role that sort of various actors played in, in, in decolonization in that period. Um, so I guess, yeah, I was struck by the fact that, you know, I hadn't really encountered much about Islamic thinkers that were kind of radical anti-colonialists or kind of radical egalitarians. So um, that's one I, I hope to explore some more. One thing I'll say, I mean, this is this sounds extremely well, fascinating. Gonna... Um, one thing that I want to say very quickly is that something I've been thinking about lately is how religion feels like a, a significant blind spot for the contemporary left. And I've been interested in recovering a lot of the radical thinking in the post-colonial era, which saw religion as a site of struggle and saw emancipatory potential in, in radical versions of religion, whether it be Islamic thought, Christian thought, um, Jewish thought. Um, and I think this sounds extremely interesting, but also very worthwhile. Um, body of thought to recover. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Cool. Yeah. No, I mean, just on this, and I know we got to ask Will quickly what he's reading, we, we got to move on so we don't get stuck on just talking about religion today like we did last week with football. Um, but mm. uh, it is, it is fine. I mean, there's other people, right, who predates this. There's a lot of like when, when people sort of dismissed as, what is it, like millenarian? Like what is it like, you know, about the millennium that these people were, it's the end of the 19th, it's the beginning of the 20th century. So these are sort mm -hmm. of like um, people that are out of time. When in fact, a lot of these, as you sort of rightly point out, these are there's a lot of radical politics that come out of it. There's interesting work by a Jamaican scholar. His name now escapes me, but he's at Brown. And he does a re-reading a re of the anti-colonial struggle in Jamaica by focusing on what he, he, he sort of critiques the sort of the nationalism of you know the kind of not liberal nationalism but suits Norman Manley mm -hmm. uh, you know it becomes Norman Manley Michael Manley and so on and then he goes back and looks at these mostly kind of women based in religions the Rastas are part of it uh, many other churches in Jamaica that actually 
as much as they were sort of thinking about the afterlife, they also wanted to live that life now. And mm -hmm. often they demanded a lot more from the state than the first from the colonial state, but even from these nationalist movements that were emerging, they, they demanded a lot more accountability or what they thought this world was going to be like that came after colonialism. But often they were sort of dismissed as like, you know, they weren't wearing suits and ties. They weren't demanding electoral power or flags, this kind of flag independence. They wanted something more. And so they often got dismissed here. Yeah, but this is an interesting, um, interesting kind of line of research here. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to uh, use well, that what are you reading? I'm reading. Yeah, to use that to talk about what I'm reading. I'm going to uh, re-mention a book I mentioned a few weeks ago. Um, it's called World Making After Empire. It's by Adam Gattatro, who is a professor at the University of Chicago. I'm just going to mention it because Saeed has a, has a great interview with Adam on Jacobin. And the title of the book is World Making After Empire. And I haven't finished it yet, but the argument that Gattatro tries to advance is she says that the anti-colonial movements of the 20th century weren't merely trying to achieve self-determination for their countries, but were also invested in a project of world making. And what that project of world making meant was trying to reconstruct the international order to embrace principles of freedom, emancipation, and equality. And so what the anti-colonial resistance was, was simultaneously both a struggle for national self-determination, as well as an internationalist struggle to, to reorder the international community, instead of just viewing it as, as trying to, to integrate them into that international community. Um, and it's a fascinating book. Uh, and like I began, uh, you should check out, you should all check out Saeed's interview on Jacobin um, with Adam Gattatro, where he, he talked through um, with her some of the, the key concepts and arguments of that book. Thanks a lot for the shout on that one, Will. And actually, um, this guy is very much a sort of uh, world-making sort of anti-colonial thinker in that in that Idem uh, Gatachu model in his own way, Sheikh Niyas, who I'm studying. So it does tie pretty well into that um, because, I mean, for him, as I was saying, and for a lot of Sahelian kind of religious figures, not to dwell too much on the subject, I know Sean is also keen to move on, but, um, you know, they no, thought of the... Okay. Okay, nice. No, I was just saying they thought of kind of community uh, in a much broader sense than the sort of nation state uh, because, you know, the sort of Muslim Tijani or, or, or in this uh, uh, Sufi community, of course, extends across, you know, these borders. So for someone like Niyas, um, uh, who was a Pan-Africanist, the moment of decolonization where um, sort of nation state model triumph was actually a quite disappointing uh, turnout for him. So um, there's a lot, it seems, to unpack in that period and, and uh, kind of very interesting thinking around what the world could have looked like um, that I think is quite fascinating. Uh, and I tried to dig some of this up in the Jacobin uh, conversation with Adam Gattachi. So thanks for bringing that one up. I should mention that there's a there is another article um, that is a good interview by the way the one on Jacobin, um, but there's a uh, on on the sort of related subject we did run an interview a while back uh, be, uh, by Carlos Fernandez and uh, Suren Pele with uh, Suleiman um, I'm going to mess up his name the Senegalese philosopher who's at Colombia Suleiman Danye I think is his last name Basir 
Um, and a piece, we, if people want to look for it, it's called Marxism and Islam in Africa. And the, the mm -hmm. description is that Karl Marx can be useful to people fighting for social justice um, uh, and who at the same time are deeply religious. And it's basically, um, Suleiman takes people through kind of uh, post-colonial Senegal um, and the role of kind of religion. So there are these kind of radical students that emerged in the late 60s. And they, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember all the detail, but I think they are going back to like older traditions and looking for these connections between sort of radical religious politics or radical Islamic politics um, and sort of radical leftist politics. Like, are there, are there places where those uh, two things um, connect? So just on my book, I'm still, on my book is so, I look so stupid right now because I'm reading a book about football. I'm still reading a book about football. Um, I'm reading this book called, uh, these guys are like, these guys are like, he was involved with anti-colonial struggle. Like this is like this, you know, heavily university press books. And yeah, I come with like, oh, I'm still reading that that book about uh, South African football in the 90s. I know Saeed would disagree with me that that was not the greatest period of South African football because Nigeria in that African Nations Cup that South Africa won, mm -hmm. Nigeria was banned from that cup for good reasons. I mean, that's because um, uh, Sani Abacha. Yeah. Had uh, Ken Sarah we were executed, and for yeah. that reason, they were they were uh, disinvited from from the Cup of Nations. But I know there's a lot of older Nigerian football players like Kanu um, Okocha who will go on and on about how in Keshi while he was alive that like South Africa won champions because we were the best. But in any <laughs> case, I'll take the W. Internet. <laughs> And the book is reading, he's like warming up. He's like, he's like ready to take me on. And no, Sean, you said I can see you firing up. The yeah. book I'm reading is called Madiba's Boy. And it's a book mm -hmm. about two of the players who were key in that team, Mark Fish, who people know. I mean, I'm not going to repeat what I did last week. I'm not going to say Fish. And the <laughs> other one is this guy called Lucas Hadebe who's arguably the second best player in the history of African football. Google the other one, Benny McCarthy, he's number one. But anyway, the part where I'm at now, which I'm finding really fascinating, the way the book is constructed is like it tells their lives. They're sort of roughly the same age. They were born at the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s. And what's interesting about both of them is like the one is growing up in Soweto, the other one is growing up in kind of white South Africa, working class actually, Pretoria, which is the capital. Um, but the part about that, which I found fascinating, Lucas Hadebe is really clean cut. If you know, you know, he played for Leeds, um, played for Kaiser Chiefs in South Africa, then went to Leeds. Um, and a really clean cut guy, FIFA Fair Play Award, you know, that is that sort of character, ambassador for South African football. But in the late 1980s, when he's like in his mid to late teens, he actually participated in, in kind of liberation politics. And I don't know if people can remember, at that time, the whole issue was, by the liberation movement was to say make South Africa ungovernable. So that you know that was the phrase. So make it impossible for the police to police you, for the army to come into the neighborhood. And Khadeva, who was like 14, 15 at the time, is actually involved in self-defense committees, which is these groups that are defending, you know, to defend the community against the police and against uh proxy armies. There was a there was a group called Inkata, which is still in Parliament, by the way. So he's part of the young people who are defending the community against them. He's also involved in these ad hoc courts, which meets out justice to essentially people who they consider 
impimpis, which are like sort of traitors, or people that they deem who are criminals. So literally kidnapping people. I mean, vivid descriptions of of uh, hitting people. Not he. He's just he, in the storytelling. He's sitting on drinking a coke while other people are doing it but beating people up with shovels. I mean, this is so, I mean, again, I'm not surprised because I'm fascinated. That's another project which I want to do at some point about the sort of violent period in South African sport in the 1980s, particularly football. Um, so, you know, for me, this is fascinating stuff. I kind of suspected that I always worried, like what was Sadeva's relationship to that moment in South African history? Um, and so it's very fascinating. But anyway, I know Sahid wants to go back and and <laughs> disagree about, about the, about the greatness of that 1996 um, South African team. No, Sean, you already uh, admitted that if Nigeria had been, you know, in the in the in the cup that year, things might have played out differently. So I think I'll just leave it there. You know, that is such a that is such a form of revisionism. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we'll let that go. So so. Uh, Let's step off that then. So the, the thing, um, Will, I was actually before we before we move on to like we want to get specifically into like going on, as you said, in the in the in the promo for the for, for this week's episode, we want to go on a journey um, of Nigerian um, politics. And I did forget to mention one other very important thing about Said before I ask all this question. Um, Said is also a contributing editor of Africa as a country. And he, if you go to the website, you can read some of his arguments about the left in Nigeria and the potential for a kind of more progressive politics out of this sort of, um, uh, I don't know, this kind of uh, the game of party politics. But we'll get into that um, in a minute. Um, but Will, there's an article that Will did on the website uh, that's there. It was put up this morning, and I think it's a very important piece. Um, it's about evictions and the way that we talk about evictions, uh, evictions of poor people from house, from, you know, in, 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 in poor neighborhoods in South Africa. But I think it extends to other places. And I'd like Saeed if he wants to also um, add to this, but well, can you just set it up because it starts with the story of this of a man who gets who gets violently uh, pulled out of his house by what is described in Cape Town as law enforcement officers. Officers, but can you just tell? Like, can you just set it up? Yeah, sure. Um, so the the impetus for writing the piece was an incident which happened last week in Kayalicha, which is uh, a township on the so-called outskirts of, of the city of Cape Town. And what happened was there was a community of residents um, occupying a piece of land. Um, and the official story goes according to the city of Cape Town, they were occupying the piece of land unlawfully and there was an eviction order that the city of Cape Town obtained, which empowered them to evict those residents. And one of those residents was a man by the name of Bulelani Tolani. And over the course of this eviction, which had included other residents, um, his eviction happened, uh, his eviction home happened while he was naked and wasn't wearing any clothes. And he was violently dragged from outside of his shack, um, which is for people who don't understand what that word means, basically a makeshift structure that tries to serve as a home for people um, out of materials such as corrugated iron, wood, wire, and other materials. So he was violently dragged out of his shack by these law enforcement officers and uh, a, 
what happens afterwards is he's desperately trying to get back into his home because he's he's naked and uh, the law enforcement officers try to restrain him. And he manages to very briefly successfully get back inside his shack, um, after which uh, the people who are responsible for carrying out the eviction um, proceed to demolish his home after this entire episode. So it's a very it's a very difficult video to watch, and it's a video that I think correctly sparked a lot of outrage and, and uproar, and was widely circulated on social media, and inspired responses from a lot of South Africans. And so what's happened over the last few days is both is, is various different groups in society trying to sort of control the narrative of how we should understand this eviction. On the one hand. We have the city of Cape Town, um, which has, which is governed by the Democratic Alliance. The Democratic Alliance is South Africa's official opposition, and they're the only political party that um, has provincial power. They govern the Western Cape as well. So we have the Democratic Alliance, whose whose reputation over the years has suffered due to them being notorious for for carrying these evictions out in many communities um, and particularly doing so in a, in a heartless manner. And, and one of the reasons why the nature of the evictions carried out by the Democratic Alliance are especially um, upsetting and especially sort of, I guess, um, worthy of outrage is that Cape Town is a South African city that has a particularly, particularly um, bad legacy of spatial apartheid. So the city's inequality uh, is is perfectly mapped geographically, where you have wealthy suburban areas in which mostly white South Africans live, and poor and disadvantaged areas in which mostly black and colored South Africans live. So the city of Cape Town tried to control this narrative. They've tried to say that it was a legal eviction order that they've obtained, and the mayor of Cape Town, uh, Dan Plato. Um, has gone so far as to say that Mr. Kolani even deliberately undressed himself in order to embarrass the city over the course of this course of this eviction. And so the DA is trying to control the narrative to exonerate itself from any blame and to defend its actions. And at the same time, uh, the ruling party, um, the African National Congress, has sort of weaponized this moment to try and portray the Democratic Alliance as being an especially anti-poor administration, an administration that runs contrary to the interests of the majority of South Africans. Um, Becky Kele, for example, who is the current South African Minister of Police, um, made a personal visit to Mr. Kolani um, and has even made statements saying he'll fast track the assault charges which have been lodged against um, the four law enforcement officers who are responsible for this eviction. Uh, and, and effectively then, you know, my piece kind of looks at all of what is happening and, and tries to make sense of this episode and how people are, are currently unpacking this episode, this eviction episode. Uh, and effectively the argument that I try to make is to say that there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing new about this eviction, first and foremost, this eviction or, or evictions rather in South Africa, evictions are carried out by both the Democratic Alliance, as well as the African National Congress. And the way both political parties understand evictions is always to portray the people who are occupying land as being people who are invading that land. 
which is to say that they have no claim to that land. That land rightfully belongs to the city and the interests of the city and people who are seeking housing and shelter are antagonistic is, is how they understand it to be. As well as to say that uh, when it comes to understanding evictions in South Africa, we should understand evictions and dispossession generally as being a foundational aspect of South Africa's political economy as it's unfolded throughout history. So it's, it's an integral part of the development of South African capitalism. Uh, it's intimately linked to our apartheid and colonial past. And it's something that we shouldn't object to only if it's carried out in a, in a particularly egregiously inhumane way as Mr. Kolani's eviction was, but it's something that we should object to to court because people are being deprived of a home and shelter. And what that deprivation of a home and shelter, I think represents in the South African context is that denial of citizenship, is expelling people to the margins of society in order to make um, the general exploitation that exists in that society much more feasible um, if the lines of inclusion and in exclusion can be made explicit. And the eviction is one way in which the lines of inclusion and exclusion are made explicit. Mm. And yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I was gonna ask um, this sort of, Said, we know that in, in in Lagos, right, there's a sort of similar process um, where people, it's called Taco Bay. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this will, this is a nice way for us sure. to then move on to Nigeria. But there's been similar processes there. And there was also violence. I remember the scenes of violence when they were also dragging people out of their homes for that. Yeah. And that's ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, great peace, Will. And, um, the incident you're referencing, Sean, uh, in a community called Taco Bay um, and a community near, near Taco Bay called Okunayo uh, actually happened in January of this year. Uh, and what happened was basically early in the morning, the naval officials of the Nigerian Navy showed up to these, these communities and um, were firing gunshots in the air and um, told residents of these communities that they had about an hour to pack up all of their belongings and leave immediately. Uh, and actually, similar to what Will has described in South Africa, uh, I mean, these are um, fairly sort of common, unfortunately, uh, scenarios in Lagos. So over the course of the past decade, there have been numerous such evictions um, playing out in Similarly, quite picturesque, you know, uh, uh, waterfront communities, you know, you can see the picture of Taco Bay over there. And, um, that is, it's quite a lovely place, but um, also in various other areas that um, kind of were marked as, as uh, sites for redevelopment of various sorts. Uh, you know, so in Nigerian case, what, what, we witness is, what we're witnessing is a similar process whereby, um, you know, sort of poor kind of semi-informal dwellers are effectively dispossessed to make room for um, kind of uh, luxury developments of various sort um, or malls or kind of various sorts of uh, larger scale kind of more elite focused projects. Um, so it's a trend that unfortunately is, is, is 
seems to be kind of uh, accelerating here as pressures over land rights and kind of sort of availability of land increases. Um, but as Will has pointed out, I think it clearly also illustrates uh, the question of who the state thinks it's here to protect, who this, whose interest the state thinks it's here to guard. Um, and it's clearly not the interest of these folks who were given an hour to um, basically uproot the lives that they have built over the course of decades of, of living in this community. Um, and I mean, there were some pretty facile explanations offered by uh, the state for the evictions. I mean, there was some reference to um, uh, oil bunkering, which because this particular community is situated on the site of a major pipeline, um, you know, there was some criminal activity that went on vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the pipeline, but you know, that in no way can justify, and in fact, kind of, even from the perspective of the law does not amount to or, or, or um, grant sanction to this sort of blanket punishment. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a very tragic moment and the communities that were displaced basically have been more or less scattered to the winds. There's, there's one or two settlements that have sprung up in other areas where, where kind of host communities have been generous enough to um, you know, grant some space for, for, for some informal housing. Um, but that this would happen, you know, at a, in a city where there's already a quite uh, dramatic amount of housing uh, shortages. And, you know, that this has actually continued to happen even into the period of the COVID-19 lockdown just illustrates again, you know, the, the point that Will makes of, of um, a state who sees its interest as to see its role as protecting the interests of a certain class against that of, uh, you know, people who it considers disposable or encroach, you know, to be encroaching on, uh, you know, lands that it considers valuable. Um, so, unfortunately, just this sort of classic process of accumulation by dispossession. Yeah, and the the accumulation by dispossession model to me seems very distinctly present in in countries that are characterized by uh, a post-colonial experience emerging from um, you know, British colonialism, not only here in South Africa, in Kenya, but in Nigeria as well. And I'm sure there are some differences uh, too. Mm. So maybe in order to better understand that uh, and to direct the discussion to broadly the state of Nigerian politics, um, could you give us a sense of Nigeria's politics today? And maybe in order to arrive at that point, could you explain some of the history of, of Nigeria? Um, Nigeria achieves its independence from uh, Great Britain in 1960, and it moves into uh, a new, uh, exciting and tumultuous, but also sometimes prosperous era of its history. Um, what happens after 1960? Mm. So I think a kind of key difference in the uh, uh, two examples of eviction that we're discussing that I think is perhaps a useful entry point into discussing Nigeria's wider politics is, is the difference in the arms of the state that carried out the eviction. So in the example that you've described now from Cape Town, you know, it was the police which are integrated into South Africa's wider history and, you know, have been the kind of pointy end of, um, you know, the apartheid state previously and also, um, you know, various kind of aspects of, uh, post-apartheid South Africa's um, kind of interaction with poor 
and working people. Um, but in Nigeria, you know, we had members of the armed forces. And, you know, to work our way backwards, uh, Nigeria came back to democracy after a period of uh, uh, long-standing mili military rule in uh, 1999, um, founding of the Fourth Republic, uh, our current democratic uh, era. And actually, this Fourth Republic uh, has been the longest-running period of sort of electoral democracy in Nigerian history. It's now lasted for 20 years. Um, and this is the period where actually most of my work takes place and it's the period I focus on. Um, but, you know, it's been characterized by uh, the continued relevance of the military and of uh, the security sector more generally in a number of ways. I think the most obvious one is the fact that even in the process of beginning the Fourth Republic, the first president to take power, Olusegun Obasanjo, was a former military president. Uh, you know, he had actually served as um, uh, a ruler of, of the country on the military rule on the two previous occasions. You know, so. And that has a kind of paradoxical effect on, on the shape of democracy going forward. On the one hand, it did mean that, um, you know, having somebody with this much kind of um, respect and authority within the military brass meant that he could uh, kind of establish a, a sort of new order. And he did so through a, a series of, of processes that involving kind of degrading some of the more political uh, wings of the military. Um, but it also meant that the military remained quite relevant in politics um, and that, you know, the, the, the sort of process perhaps of uh, going through a kind of, um, say, reconciliation or trial or justice uh, process to deal with the, the role of the military in previous uh, um, periods of Nigerian history didn't quite play out as much as it could have been. So a lot of the people who were parts of coups in the past who had, you know, ruled as dictators are still around. In fact, the current president now, you know, three, three or four presidents later after uh, the Obasanjo era is also a former uh, military uh, uh, general, um, speaking of President Mohamed Buhari, the current president. So that kind of specter of uh, sort of military's uh, participation in politics has never fully um, kind of left, even though, you know, we've entered into a democratic period. And while on the one hand, that's provided a bit of stability and continuity from the previous era and guarding the interests of um, those who would see it threatened by kind of more radical forces, uh, a much more radical version of democracy. It's also limited the extent to which sort of broader social forces could participate in um, this new electoral um, period. And like I said, you know, this period was preceded by um, quite uh, actually dictatorial uh, uh, periods of military rule the kind of primary one right before the Fourth Republic being Sani Abacha, who's already been mentioned uh, in, in, in the uh, episode. And he is, you know, kind of remembered for a number of pretty uh, horrific um, measures. But one of the ones that kind of um, the wider world will probably remember more easily is the, is the um, execution of Ken Sarawiwa, uh, uh, activist who was 
fighting for the rights of uh, communities in the oil producing region uh, of the country called the Niger Delta. Um, but yeah, I mean, the military era, like I said, continues to loom large, but you know, it also was informed by the period that preceded it. Uh, you know, these kinds of moments of experimenting with democracy that happened first in the first five years after Nigeria's independence in 1960, 1965, roughly. Um, and then uh, again in the 80s when, uh, you know, the military actually Obasanjo handed over power to um, civilian leaders. But one kind of reoccurring uh, issue that continued to plague um, this the sort of experiments with democracy was uh, the, the question of Nigeria's diversity, right? As a country um, that has something like 200, has these quite um, radically different historical traditions of um, political organization. You know, so in Northern Nigeria, you had a kind of emirate system that was embedded in the wider um, sort of Islamic emirate system that um, uh, prevailed in the Sahel uh, region of, of, of West Africa, while in the South, uh, you had various forms of uh, imperial or chief rule in the Southwest um, and various forms of actually fairly kind of egalitarian um, rule, uh, sort of acephalous rule in the, in the uh, Southeast of the country. So the colonial state, you know, pulled all of these quite different forms of social and political organization together in the, in the formation of Nigeria. And the question of resolving this, uh, you know, sort of hodgepodge of uh, different cultures and political traditions uh, was not really fully resolved and in fact continues to be, you know, a kind of uh, obstacle in the formation of a coherent national identity in Nigeria. Um, and was often one of the underlying currents that led to the fall of democracy in the previous periods and the intervention of the military. Um, so, I mean, I've told the story in a slightly disjointed way going backwards, but, um, right. you know, yeah. sort of key elements that I want to highlight in, in um, the sort of trajectory of Nigerian politics include this sort of figure of the military as both a stabilizing factor, but also a kind of uh, institution that maintains the status quo, various attempts at trying to forge democracy that have been undermined by kind of uh, the politics of ethnicity uh, and the purposeful deployment of that politics by uh, civilian actors. Um, and then, you know, the sort of unresolved question of how we uh, uh, pull together a national identity in the midst of uh, quite dramatically different political traditions and uh, ethnic and social cultural backgrounds. Um, and of course, I can say more about how this applies to various aspects of contemporary Nigeria uh, as we go on. Right. I, I really like the way you set it up. It, that was a really nice um, kind of exposition. And I think, so just to follow up from that, I, I, a lot of people would argue that there's, there's like two moments that this, ra that, that, and I, I think you've alluded to it, and I, with the first one, you say, like, after independence, there's an experiment. And then, of course, there's the Civil War. So mm. the, there's a lot of, we've, we've published a lot on this, that the Civil War is a, is a it's, I don't want to call it an original sin, but it's an unresolved issue with regards to, as you said, about the diversity of the country, uh, whether, whether at some point there should be 
a national conversation about that moment and how to think about that moment, like not to not necessarily to resolve it if we think about TRCs or truth commissions, but just to have a public conversation about what that moment did to Nigerian politics. And I will say one other one quickly. The early 1990s is uh, uh, Babangida's experiment, right? He brings in progressives um, and he tries to like say, well, let me let me, let me let, because I, I'm gonna I might I might misrepresent it, but there's there's another opportunity. Let me rephrase it like that. There's another opportunity from the late 80s till the early 90s to reimagine or rethink the basis of the Nigerian state or like what is Nigerian politics, and then that project also fails. So can you like, or well, deliberately because that's another military coup, but can you can mm -hmm. you just say something about that? Because I think for people may not know about those, but those are two key moments also setting the terms of, of what we have now in Nigeria. Sure. Um, and now, you know, limit my comments to the aspects of this that I, that I do know, while not being an expert on kind of Nigerian civil war or, or, or Nigerian sort of history more, more generally. But I mean, it's true that the civil war, I think is well characterized as a kind of original sin huh? because it's, I think the moment when um, the sort of post-colonial dream of trying to forge uh, a nation out of this variety of, of kind of disparate groups starts to fray. Um, and yeah, you know, the civil war, just in terms of the basic uh, history of it, um, broke out in, in 1967 and pitted um, the uh, uh, kind of breakaway republic um, by the name of Biafra and uh, are led by uh, a military colonel um, called Odumegu Ojuku. Um, against the rest of Nigeria. And this, this sort of breakaway republic was located in the southwest of the country. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, there were fairly sort of progressive uh, aspects to the project. And, and this is quite a debated uh, area of history as civil wars tend to be. Um, but, you know, there were also, you know, fairly kind of repressive aspects of the project as well, because like I said, you know, the sort of um, at least symbol and, and leader of this uh, secessionist movement was himself a military uh, uh, leader. But suffice it to say that the way the Nigerian state re responded was kind of throwing everything it had, and, uh, preventing the, the movement. And, um, you know, there was a series of massacres and a quite bloody and, uh, uh, and, and horrific episode that lasted for three years. Uh, and by the end of it, um, the, the Biafran state effectively collapsed and, and, um, and the war ended. Um, but yeah, I mean, since then, there has barely been really a process of uh, trying to account for what has happened, not to talk of deal with the question of, of, uh, of say, any sort of any form of reparations, because, um, you know, the sort of toll that was borne by um, particularly Igbo, people of Igbo uh, ethnic extraction who were the kind of primary group um, that, that, that were to um, kind of uh, occupy the Biafran state along with other uh, minority groups. Um, that the question of, you know, the, the kind of resolving the, the sort of toll that was borne by that ethnic group primary, uh, in particular has not really been um, Kind of reckoned with historically, even though there's now at least you know in a lot of in some kind of popular 
um, discourses, there's now a little more of an interest in thinking through these issues. Um, and there's also kind of recurrent agitations in that part of the country for um, increased evolution or even secession in the form of movements such as the indigenous people of Biafra movement, which is a contemporary uh, kind of secessionist movement. Um, so I think that also illustrates the extent to which there's still a lot of lingering kind of um, questions or memories um, uh, or feelings of injustice that haven't that uh, haven't fully been resolved. Um, so you're right to point that out as one of the key moments, I think, when uh, the sort of Nigerian project was derailed. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're alluding to with the Babangida uh, in the Babangida era was a kind of national conference um, to try to chart out um, the future of, of the Nigerian state. And I should say, by the way, that pretty much every uh, military dictatorship in Nigeria has tried to set up one or the other kind of national conversation. Um, but I think part of what um, undermines these uh, attempts at calling together figures from across the country is first of all, that that can't be a process that's initiated by a military dictator. You know, that has to be a process for it to be, for it to represent the legitimate uh, aspirations of uh, a diverse set of people that has to emerge, you know, from those very people. Uh, and that's one aspect of uh, the kind of process of trying to forge a nation that hasn't really uh, occurred. So the Bamangida ex uh, example is one where he kind of pulls together um, a variety of actors to discuss the future of Nigerian politics and to chart out, uh, you know, the way forward. And actually, uh, somehow there managed to be some representation by left uh, intellectuals, at least one kind of socialist thinker, uh, Edwin Madunagu, was part of the Obangida uh, 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 example of this. Um, but, you know, what ultimately comes out wasn't really absorbed into the fabric of what Nigeria became afterwards, um, you know, for the reason you raised that um, ultimately that process was also uh, cut short by uh, a coup staged um, by, by um, the Abacha sort of junta. So again, I mean, I think the process of trying to forge some sort of basis for national cohesion, um, even though there have been, you know, one or two attempts or, or several attempts to do so, um, it hasn't quite established enough of a basis um, for, for kind of a consensus around, um, you know, the future of, of Nigerian politics and society, I think. To ask a to ask a follow up question, and maybe this maybe this can be a portal into the discussion about contemporary Nigerian politics. But when thinking about the the Biafran War, for example, um, there's a Marxist anthropologist, a Nigerian Marxist anthropologist, uh, Ikena Nziwiro, and he he says that the the Biafran War should be thought of as an inter ethnic conflict, but should be thought of as an inter class conflict um, between the Igbo bourgeoisie and the Northerners, right? And I guess my question to you is, um, when we think about the national question, not only the national question Nigeria, but the national question throughout the African continent, we often think of it as being the most important question that decides the fate of politics in the polity that we're talking about. Um, you know, how important do you think the national question is uh, to Nigerian politics today? and do you think that sometimes the national question 
sort of supersede, um, you know, the question of class uh, and the political economy in Nigeria. Do you think that kind of, you know, in a, in a classic Fanonian critique, you could say, do you think those sort of um, issues get obscured by, by the focus on, on the national question? Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty very well phrased question. And I, yeah, I do think so. I, I completely agree with that. And I think Nigeria is actually a good example of, again, to borrow from Fanon, the pitfalls of national consciousness. Um, because while we've had a series of these conferences, while we've actually even put in place certain institutions um, to sort of try to balance um, uh, diversity and try to kind of limit the extent to which ethnic diversity leads to conflict, these institutions have more or less kind of led to the um, emergence and uh, kind of solidification of uh, sort of a, elite class within every ethnic group in Nigeria, right? Um, without necessarily broadening um, the, the, the sort of segments of society that have access to power, to decision-making power, or um, to material power. So uh, yeah, that's absolutely, I think, uh, fair. Um, to say that uh, the, the sort of national question uh, has the capacity and in the case of Nigeria certainly has occluded other uh, very important conversations, including that of class. But I don't think that's an accident is the other thing. You know, I think that throughout Nigerian history, we can see kind of deliberate attempts to um, make the conversation, the political conversation about ethnicity. Uh, and about how um, sort of the resources that have come from, well, in the case of Nigeria, particularly uh, its oil wealth, um, be distributed on ethnic lines. Um, but that, you know, it's clear after 60 years of uh, roughly of, of, the, of, of uh, experimentation with various models of distributing uh, resources along those lines, that that's not done very much to you know, either create more uh, uh, a sort of uh, more pluralist ethos in the in the way we carry out our politics, or to reduce poverty, uh, you know, and empower other social actors. So I think that's a very fair point, and Nigeria is definitely a good illustration of how you know the sort of recurrent returning to this question of how we forge a, a nation per se uh, doesn't really resolve the question of of um, sort of who you know, how you can kind of uh, create a more egalitarian social order. Um, so I'll be quick because I understand that my um, internet is very bad. And so, but I'll ask my question quickly uh, to, to sort of follow up on this question of like, the, what is the, the, the nature of Nigerian politics and how do you, how do we move forward? So there has been a number of movements uh, since the resumption of democracy that have tried to, I think, challenge the basis of like rule or this kind of you know deal between the two political parties or the different sets of elites. Can you take us just a little bit through that to like the present moment? And if I want, if you could highlight things like Occupy Nigeria, like in sure. hindsight, if you could highlight uh, the efforts of Saware, um, just kind of set that for, set, set that out for people. And then finally, and I think Saware was involved in this, this the latest attempt, which is called Revolution Now. Can you just set it? And, and I think part of this question relates to something that one of the viewers just asked. Uh, his name is Noel Isama or Isama, and he asks, "How do the youth approach Isama? Sorry, approach politics, particularly ethnic politics and the military? 
So kind of like, how do you get out of that politics, which you describe as like, that's, that is the nature of the Nigerian state or Nigerian politics. So how do you get out of it? And there's been these efforts to take up through that. Yeah. So to, in the Fourth Republic, there have been um, moments where, you know, we've seen the kind of possibility of the rupture uh, of this consensus that has kind of been, in a way, established kind of quite um, much more successfully in the Fourth Republic than in previous ones. Huh? Because like I said earlier, this is the longest stretch of, of democracy in, uh, in Nigerian history. Part of the reason for that is that um, there has been a kind of balancing act created in um, the country amongst its various uh, elites emerging from a, a diversity of ethnic groups around how the resources coming from oil should be shared. Um, you know, and, and some of the sort of institutions that have been created to um, secure this consensus include this notion of federal character, excuse me, um, which is basically both an institution and in the Federal Character Commission, a national institution, and uh, a kind of norm that governs how government um, uh, jobs and government positions are allocated. And in effect, it's a kind of um, a principle that necessitates that people of various ethnic groups um, you know, have to be represented in government. Um, so this has done a, a bit to sort of create, on the one hand, a kind of uh, elite that has access to these jobs within a variety of ethnic groups. So it's stalled the sort of possibility or, or, or the, um, some of the tensions that led to conflict in previous uh, eras. But um, yeah, as we were saying, you know, it's, it's also not fundamentally led to much more wider participation and uh, a much more um, even dispersal of the resources that we have. There have been challenges to this, and 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 um, I think a primary actor in challenging the status quo has been um, uh, the Nigerian labor movement, um, and this is where the the uh, example of Occupy uh, is quite relevant. So around 2012, or actually January 2012, there was a kind of mass mobilization to the streets in Nigeria um, that occurred after the Nigerian government just withdrew a subsidy it had on petroleum products. Um, and the subsidy on petroleum in Nigeria is one of the kind of last remaining, um, if you want to call it social welfare programs that the Nigerian government maintains because it effectively ensures that, uh, you know, um, sort of poor working masses can afford slightly cheaper transportation and access to uh, sort of fuel and kerosene, which is used for cooking. Um, so. The withdrawal of this subsidy meant that the price of uh, petroleum more or less doubled overnight, um, and that led to quite massive mobilization. I mean, both by the labor unions who kind of called for nationwide strikes, but also by new social actors, uh, young people who were participating in politics in many cases for the first time. And actually, I remember this moment as perhaps my own kind of political awakening. Um, where I thought, wow, like, you know, for the first time we're seeing Nigerians step out, the first time anyway in the sort of um, Fourth Republic period, we were seeing Nigerians step out into the street and demand um, change kind of across the board, both in uh, the patterns of governance that, had, you know, become quite corrupt and embedded in sort of, um, you know, various forms of, 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 of um, sort of sharing, uh, to use the Nigerian balance, um, but also, you know, 
more fundamental questions about uh, who should be in power and the way power should be kind of distributed nationally. Ultimately, the conversation was resolved around um, the subsidy and the subsidy removal was kind of partially um, um, reversed. Um, and then the labor movements uh, ultimately accepted that kind of compromise and, and, and ended the strikes. And depending who you asked, I mean, if you, if you ask a lot of the activists who were kind of first, uh, let's say radicalized by that experience, they found the labor movement's uh, decision to call off the strike to be a sort of betrayal of the wider aims of the Occupy movement. And so if you talk to a lot of the activists around the Shori movement, which I'll talk about in a second, um, you know, they found that moment to reflect the kind of neoliberal impulses within the labor movement and the kind of bureaucratization of structures of labor um, that uh, maybe aren't as responsive to popular uh, mobilization as they could be. But, you know, I've, I've just been reading recently uh, a piece by Camilla Harland, who's also a contributor to Africa as a country um, around the Occupy uh, protests. And, you know, it's caused me to rethink a little bit that question of labor's role um, and kind of acknowledge the fact that for a lot of us, you know, myself and, you know, a lot of the real activists, I think, who have stayed active since then, um, the, the Occupy 2012 um, mobilization was a kind of watershed moment. It, you know, kind of raised the possibility that mass participation can actually move the lever, even if not as far as people wanted. Um, and it also kind of made, was one of the major chinks in the armor of um, the PDP, which at the point had uh, governed Nigeria for 16 years throughout the, 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 the uh, first 16 years of the Fourth Republic. Um, and I think it's one of you know, the, the, the issues that uh, led to the ultimate defeat of the PDP, um, which occurred in the 2019 elections when um, the, the APC, the All Progressives Congress, the current ruling party, um, you know, won in this historical ele uh, election. So even if the Occupy movements did not achieve all of the aims that kind of were tabled at that moment, it did kind of uh, raise new openings that uh, were exploited by various actors. In one case, you know, the, the um, opposition party, which now has become the ruling party, but in another case, you know, creating a, a sort of new consciousness amongst um, young people about what was possible. Some of that has not been, okay. Well, I was just going to touch a little bit on, on the question of um, revolution now and the Shorey movement by saying that some of what um, that kind of agitation uh, around Occupy has now fed into um, various new forms of trying to present alternatives to you know, both the PDP, which was housed in, in 2015, and the APC, which has more or less replicated the patterns of, uh, of, of governance that the PDP uh, kind of um, set, in, set in place. And so the, this, this uh, character, Omoyele Shorey, ran for president in um, the 2019 elections on the platform of a new party called the African Action Congress, um, which more or less was built out of um, sort of student movements and student activism of the 80s and 90s, um, and attempted, even though not fully successfully, to also draw in um, various kind of labor constituents um, within the country. Um, and Showeri lost in the election, um, but I think achieved more than 
uh, any kind of left electoral challenge had uh, in the years, in sort of years of the Fourth Republic that preceded that, um, and actually went on after the election to call for a major protest, um, which they dubbed Revolution Now. Um, and that protest movement, um, it, you know, was scheduled for August 5th last year. Um, but right before that, Shori himself was abducted by um, members of the state security services and was jailed basically for five months for attempting um, that movement. Uh, and I mean, I, I guess in some ways you can read his arrest as um, a kind of sen uh, sense from the folks in power that there was some possibility that, you know, the, the, the protest would lead to some sort of wider um, agitation at a point in time when the country had just kind of come out of a pretty severe recession. Um, but at the same time, since then, I think the wider agenda that Show Ray was trying to put on the table, um, basically a kind of attempt at bringing uh, young people, you know, sort of further widening the, the um, uh, arena for young people to participate in politics. Um, that agenda has more or less kind of um, been subsumed within the politics and the sort of legal battle around his own case. Um, so, you know, I think the kind of possibilities around that movement um, at the moment appear to be a little bit in limbo. Um, but I think, yeah, it was uh, kind of one of the most interesting um, sort of, um, and to some extent explicitly leftist sort of electoral um, and, and protest uh, attempts that we've seen in recent years in Nigeria. To ask a question, uh, just a quick follow-up question. Do you think that the, the trajectory from Occupy Nigeria immediately after the 2008 recession to Shore's electoral bid in 2019, do you think it would be fair to characterize that as being Nigeria's experiment with left populism? So the kind of left populism thesis, the basic argument is that, you know, in this era of demobilization, working class demobilization, when we're seeing the decline of traditional left-wing parties, we're seeing the immiseration of classical sites of working class organizations such as trade union, the left populist experiment presents an opportunity for mobilization in an age of demobilization, um, as some scholars have put it, and basically, the way they try to go about doing that is to try and build as widest as possible a coalition of different forces, different segments of society to try and sort of uh, mount a counter hegemonic project. Of course, the difficulty being, um, which people are starting to kind of engage with now, is that the, the left populist experiment struggles to sort of institutionalize the formant that it that is able to generate so there's a there's a difficulty in terms of making the transition from from protest to politics right and mm -hmm. and try and sustain those coalitions that that were very difficult to pull together in the first place do you think that's a fair assessment in order to try and generalize what happened in nigeria do you think that that would be a correct way of describing it or do you think that um it was much more particular to, to Nigeria's political conditions um, in this last decade? Uh, that's a really good question, Will, and it's one I've been kind of thinking through myself while engaging with the wider conversation around 
um, the sort of pit, the failures and successes of left populism elsewhere. Um, so I think the Shorey movement isn't subconsciously plugging into that wider mom, um, movement, even though it's occurring at roughly the same time. Uh, you know, so I think it might be maybe a bit generous to um, kind of situate them within that trajectory because they don't appear to sort of self-consciously, I mean, at least sort of show Ray himself in, his, in, in the way he describes uh, their aims. They don't, they don't appear to sort of self-consciously try to locate themselves within um, that wider uh, left populist moment. Even though I think there are some uh, forces around him, some of the kind of radical student activists and um, some kind of socialist intellectuals that have uh, uh, been drawn into the movement um, do see that possibility. Um, but I think they hadn't even really gotten to um, the stage of trying to sort of create um, a, a left sort of political force beyond labor um, and kind of carry out the, the sort of strategies and, and, and um, that we've seen with sort of left populist movements elsewhere. So maybe it's something a little more particular to the Nigerian case um, because I think the, the sort of identity that they wanted to highlight and what um, I think they wanted to foreground is this question of youth participation. You know, it, it appeared that um, their movement was primarily centered around uh, giving young people a chance. Um, but uh, as we've seen, like that has its own sort of limitations that um, I think also reflect some of the difficulties of trying to carry out a left populist project um, more generally, but I think um, are also kind of particularly um, uh, relevant when you think about uh, the various limitations uh, that, that a kind of youth-focused um, political movement will confront in Nigeria, including uh, the sort of crackdown by the security forces uh, that, that we've witnessed in the kind of revolution now, hashtag uh, protest moment uh, that occurred. So one of our viewers, um, the, the very well-known Boima, um, is asking about culture. So I think I want to, I just want to ask you, like set it up. You talked about youth politics um, and kind of youth-led movements. So of course, culture always seems to be associated with the youth. And in Nigeria, there's always been, and you know this, you know this stuff, I think, very well, there's been Fela Kuti as kind of the embodiment of this kind of, of a, a style of politics that we associate um, with Nigeria. So we know that Nigerian music today is, it's everywhere, right? It's like you walk on a street in Brooklyn and it's Dav it's Davido. So can you, can you think, you think that the Nigerian musicians of today can play like some kind of role in, in, in thinking about a different kind of politics for Nigeria. And then just related to that, um, everybody's also watching Nollywood. Why isn't it that Nollywood um, has also stepped into the bridge? And if it hasn't, like, why not? Can you just deal? Because I think, and I think Boima raises a really important question, which is about around culture, around like the role of culture when we think about Nigeria. Yeah, that's another yeah really interesting line of thinking. and. I think, you know, to the question about music first, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of very optimistic moment for Nigerian music and Nigerian musicians are kind of increasingly sort of pushing the boundaries globally. 
Um, but I think there has, and well, you know, um, I think, you know, you talk about Davido, but another kind of major act that has increasingly been recognized globally is um, Burner Boy, right? With this kind of um, uh, new album, African Giant. I think we're seeing uh, some of the early, let's say, rumblings of a kind of political, um, I to use the term loosely, consciousness um, within Nigerian music, uh, uh, so within sort of mainstream Nigerian music circles. So if you listen to uh, Burner Boy's African Giant, there's a kind of obvious sort of Pan-Africanist um, strand to a lot of what he's saying. There's a sort of um, kind of recognition of um, black cultural uh, achievements and this desire to sort of be seen as um, like equal players in the sort of um, sphere of cultural production. Um, so in that way, there's, there's a bit of a kind of political awakening occurring. Um, and, you know, a few other artists that exemplify this perhaps even more explicitly are people like uh, Faust, the bad guy. I don't know if you've encountered Faust, um, um, but he's actually the son of Femi Falana, who's, who Showery is one of the lead lawyers in Showery's trial. Um, and Faust, uh, you know, is very critical of the kind of existing political system and kind of corruption and mismanagement are key themes in his music. And, you know, I remember African as a country actually had a piece on this kind of um, uh, um, music video he did sort of biting to some extent uh, the This Is America video by um, Childish Gambino where he had sort of response, this is Nigeria. Uh, you know, so there's that kind of culture of critique um, and that seems to be developing a little bit more um, in an industry that traditionally, you know, since the days of Falakuti has been um, much more known for its um, kind of uh, celebration of the sort of um, con conspicuous consumption and praise singing for politicians. So I think moving slightly into this period where we're seeing a few more artists emerge critiquing the status quo is some progress. Um, but I think we're yet to see um, the sort of very radical critiques of the economic status quo um, that we witnessed in the Fela era. Um, and yeah, it's hard to say exactly why that is. I mean, the sort of incentives of the industry maybe um, aren't necessarily geared towards people who, um, you know, both need to be successful and sort of want to critique this sort of uh, capitalist basis of, um, you know, Nigerian economic uh, organization. So maybe that's part of it. And I think that's also part of the, the story vis-a-vis um, -vis Nollywood that, um, you know, Nigerian film is massive. And of course it commands a quite substantial audience, both in Nigeria and across Africa. Um, but we've not quite seen yet that kind of critical, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, agenda develop. And I mean, in the case of movies, we have to also acknowledge the role of censorship. Um, so Nigeria's got a quite uh, active censorship board that uh, very much uh, like it, it cuts out scenes that don't reflect what it considers to be uh, in the national interest. So for instance, there was, um, 
a Hollywood film called uh, based off Chimamanda Adichie's Half of the Yellow Sun uh, that came out a couple of years ago. And when it was reviewed by Nigerian Film and Video Censors Board, they cut out a lot of sort of the more kind of controversial references to the Biafran war in that film. Um, and so I think that's part of the story with Nollywood that, you know, sort of official censorship does limit the extent to which, um, you know, you can play with slightly more radical storylines. Um, but I think there's also a bit of um, a kind of settling into a culture of producing this sort of aspirational, um, uh, success-driven uh, storylines, kind of mor morality tales, um, you know, that talk about how playing by the rules is, is, is kind of how you make it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, while not being a sort of Nollywood scholar, I think these are some of the issues um, that come to mind for me that kind of prevents the more um, sort of politically uh, uh, expansive uh, visions from taking root in, in um, a lot of Nigerian cultural production today. Just uh, just for I mean your quick comment I mean it was raised in the in the in the questions um, Boima drew attention to how do you think that this new wave of contemporary cultural expression um, in terms of thinking about its political possibilities uh, related to another question that someone asked in the comments which is to say that and I think it's a fair thing to point out is that you know Nigeria's literature production has been a mainstay of global culture and has been very radical. Um, and what, what distinguishes this new wave of contemporary cultural production? I mean, Boima's uh, characterization of it is as a, as a style aesthetic. Um, do you think that's mm. what it actually is now? Or what is the culture that we should be consuming to see these more radical inflections of Nigerian culture and specifically ones that look inward to critique not only sort of Nigeria's cultural makeup, but also um, Nigeria's social relations. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there very much is this sort of style aesthetic um, that that seems to be the center of energy and 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 uh, and of cultural production production at the moment, particularly in music. Um, at the same time, like I was saying, I mean, I think there is a kind of progressive development within um, um, Nigerian music where you are seeing a little bit more of this kind of uh, desire to push back. Uh, the extent to which that develops, you know, of course remains to be seen, but music is one place to look. And uh, I think um, that, yeah, th there's, there's some possibility inherent in the trend that we've already seen. Um, and you're right, I mean, literature historically has been, I think, at the forefront of producing slightly new ways of seeing Nigerian society. And I think it remains so now. Um, of course, you know, Chimamanda gets cited a lot in these sorts of conversations. And I mean, there's sort of limitations to um, that style of kind of politics, but, you know, it also, I think has opened up um, space for a lot of new Nigerian actors, new Nigerian writers um, to be recognized both locally and globally. And, um, you know, aside from the sort of writers that are writing for kind of diasporic audience or about a kind of diasporic experience, we've also seen writers emerge locally, um, kind of that are, that are trying to um, situate the narratives in much more grounded uh, experiences of life in Nigeria. Um, so they kind of 
even if not explicitly, um, uh, are telling a slightly different story and um, sort of um, infecting kind of public discourse with new metaphors for how you kind of uh, imagine what is possible. Um, and for instance, I really like the book, The Fisherman, which um, is also uh, uh, by Chigozo, uh, Chigozo Obioma, which has also received quite a bit of uh, acclaim uh, outside of Nigeria. But it's one of these books that, you know, in a metaphorical way, opens up a lot of the sort of social questions that you would hope that, um, you know, uh, literature and, and um, Nigerian cultural production would, would deal with. Um, yeah, so, and, and I'm sure there are, uh, you know, a few other examples, but that's just one that, that springs to mind. So literature and music, I think, are, um, are arenas to continue to watch for um, kind of seeing the way in which Nigerian cultural production uh, will, speaks to, uh, you know, questions of political, economic, and social order. But just on that quickly, the one of the um, viewers, Simukai Chigudu, has a question for you, Saeed saying, what about saying Kuti? He mounts the economic critique to his music and collaboration with American rappers who do the same, but he says also he's not sure that that may be sure of his reach. Can you just comment on that? Well, that's a really good point there, Simukai, you know, good friend of mine. Uh, thanks for joining. Uh, no, Sean Kuti is certainly a, another example of, um, you know, and definitely continues that kind of fella Kuti tradition. Um, of of mounting a critique, but there's an extent to which I mean his music uh, kind of does get sort of absorbed within um, a lot of kind of Africa centric um, communities, particularly in London. You know, so I know um, you know there's a lot of respect for his work there, certainly in America. And as you've said, you know he, he's one that. Um, does spark the interest of, of, of rappers in America and, 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 and he can manage those collaborations. But I don't think he's quite um, broken in to, um, for various reasons, and a lot of that has to do in part with his message, um, the kind of mainstream Nigerian um, music scene. So, you know, you will hear like a thousand Davido songs on the radio, you know, a hundred <laughs> WizKid and and uh, and and um, Burner Boy songs, and you might hear one Sheon Kuti. Um, you know, so there, there there are those kinds of um, let's say more alternative voices, and they have been for a long time in the Nigerian music scene. Sheon Kuti is one of the more popular ones. Um, you know, to, to do with his background, particularly abroad. Um, but you know, when we're talking about kind of mainstream Nigerian music in terms of what gets radio play, in terms of what is sort of played at the parties or um, you know, much more widely circulated within the continent. Um, unfortunately, these guys haven't quite broken into that, um, that, that, that scene. I mean, Femi Kuti is another one who um, also, you know, has been quite productive for a number of years. His music also does a lot to challenge the status quo. He also runs, um, I think, one of the most interesting establishments in Lagos, the, the New Africa Shrine, which is uh, a, a club and bar that kind of pays homage to um, a previous New Africa shrine that was set up by Fala and then um, uh, uh, actually demolished by the Nigerian government. And it's a place where people of kind of all backgrounds mingle, you know, in a very class segregated 
city like Lagos, it's a place where, you know, you will hang out with and meet with, um, you know, bus, bus conductors, you know, people in various, on various rungs of the kind of class ladder and questions of status that sort of predominate in life here in Lagos um, are somewhat shelved, you know, in, 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 in uh, the New Africa Shrine where everyone can get in for about a dollar um, and actually in certain, uh, on certain nights performances by Femi Kuti himself are free. Um, you know, so that, that sort of culture exists. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm happy you brought it up because it's worth also highlighting. Um, but there's a sense to which, you know, that, that kind of oppositional um, and anti-status coerced uh, element in, in Nigerian uh, music has partially been sidelined in the mainstream. Sorry, somebody's uh, car alarm seems to have gone off. We're trying to us to stop talking and to wrap it up. So, um, yeah, yeah so I have a, a final question. I mean, you've spoken about Nigeria's rich cultural history and its rich cultural production at the moment. And, and everyone knows Nigerian name in the production of culture. But part of what this conversation was trying to shed light on is Nigeria's radical history and its radical presence. So maybe a closing to ask you um, about your book and what you're writing now. Uh, what's left of the Nigerian left? Okay, I think the alarm's just gone off. Maybe the car's been stolen. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, what, you know, it's, the left in general, I think, in the kind of post-Cold War period. Um, uh, oh, there it comes again, sorry. Um, maybe I'll give it a second and see if, see if it passes. I'm just going to mute for a second and uh, see if it stops. So. These, okay, uh, these, are, these are things I'll wait yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it appears to when you when you lie, you cannot, predict, you cannot predict when you lie that you know Kalanam will go off. Yeah, indeed. luckily I'm in the middle of the <laughs> Nice. Um, so I mean, I guess the sort of basic answer to that, and you know, it's an ongoing project. So you know, I haven't really, uh, I won't give you too many definitive conclusions, but I think for me, a lot is left of the Nigerian left, um, even if you know we haven't seen. A successful electoral challenge from the left, um, you know, not in the form of the Shuri movement or, or others. Um, you know, we still see a quite vibrant uh, kind of intellectual production from Nigerian academics, sort of left in um, academic institutions, both locally and uh, uh, in um, sort of international universities. We still see a quite active labor movement um, and this is in many ways Africa's largest um, sort of labor movement when we talk about Nigeria's organized uh, labor movement in the, um, the sort of Nigerian Labor Congress and the Trade Union Congress of Nigeria. Um, and their intervention in the Occupy movement, uh, you know, again, illustrates the extent to which they still are a pretty powerful social actor, even in the period where we tend to think of labor as having been um, weakened substantially. Um, and we still have, uh, you know, various sort of artistic currents, you know, citing again, people like uh, the Kutis, um, but others that keep the fire burning uh, in many ways um, in sort of raising uh, consciousness and in critiquing the status quo. Um, we haven't seen a moment where a lot of these forces cohere into something that mounts uh, 
uh, successful or a, a much more sort of sustained challenge to the status quo. Um, but, you know, in their various locations, um, we, we do see like a kind of sustained presence of critique. Um, and so even if it's sort of Nigerian left isn't um, as kind of vibrant or as coherent or as powerful as, um, you know, a lot of us would hope, um, I think there's still a lot left of the left. Um, and yeah, you know, like I said, it's one that I'm, um, I'm continuing to investigate. So hopefully I'll have more to say about this, you know, um, in future write-ups uh, in, 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 um, in the article and, and, and elsewhere, uh, in, in Africa's country rather and elsewhere, maybe in book form. We definitely, we definitely want to see you more and hear you more in Africa as a country. So I'm going to drop you with the final question, which is a very easy question. Okay. If I'm trying to follow Nigerian politics and I come to you and say, give me like three, four sources, five sources that I should look at regularly, whether they be things that I watch or people that I can read, like what would you recommend? to a reader who doesn't know anything about Nigeria, but once we get to some of the issues that you are trying to raise, I don't want to read Linda Ikeji. You know, <laughs> so what, what do I read? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, the probably easiest starting point for um, a sort of beginner is the mainstream newspapers. So, you know, if you went to Punch, the website for Punch or Premium Times, you know, it give you the sort of basic facts that you need to know about what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but there are a few newer kinds of projects um, where you can, you know, sort of delve a bit deeper into um, what's happening uh, through essays and kind of um, photo explorations. And one that I really like is The Republic, um, which uh, is a website, um, uh, The Republic NG, uh, uh, that features a lot of new Nigerian writing and I think has been quite innovative in the way it incorporates um, photography and um, various forms of art. Um, so that's one to check out. Um, you know, if you're interested in more left-leaning politics, there's a Socialist Workers League uh, website, which, um, yeah, covers current events in Nigeria from a um, sort of explicitly left perspective. Um, and then, of course, Africa is a country, you know, when, when people do submit uh, uh, on Nigeria, we make sure to uh, feature only the best, uh, the, the finest quality. So, um, yeah, these are just some that spring to mind. Um, but, you know, through exploring some of these ones, I'm sure you can also um, find links to, you know, the, the sort of other um, mediums that they reference. Um, I see you've pulled up the Republic. Uh, like I say, that's a really good one. Um, if you want to kind of explore essays and um, delve a little deeper. Anyway. Forever, because I noticed that uh, in the comments on uh, on YouTube, uh, people are sort of waking up and and suddenly they they have a lot of questions. Um, but we can't ask all the questions. But the, I, I have to thank the the viewers because they also like helped us and directed us in trying to you know come up with trying to steer the conversation, and that's what we want. I just want to give one. We, I, this is like a new thing. I'm going to call it notes. Under notes, um, I see um, the, the one note I want to put is uh, Simokai. Chigudu corrected us that the best team, the best African team, was the Zimbabwean team of 1994. <laughs> um, we will not, we, everybody is, that was a great team. Was like, I think that was like Peter, um, what's his name, who played the Coventry? 
Uh, I forget Bruce Grobela, I think, was part of that team. That was a, that was a nice team. Takavira. Anyway, we're gonna leave it. Say that again. No, we should we should stage a debate in Africa as a country um, to finally settle this question because I think it's gonna follow us throughout this this, this uh, video talk show series. Well, I think we can we can debate this another time but i think egypt if you take it by the number of competitions you've won then egypt is the best team in africa of all time if you take it by in terms of just sheer talent but never lived up to that talent i'm going to say nigeria i don't know if this is a very good characterization but if you think football field nigeria has always i think has had the best talent in africa South Africa has had his moments. It's not one of the major teams in Africa. I was just trying to say that at that point, South Africa was the best team in Africa, and I want people to accept that and not debate it. Um, but in any case, I don't know where we're going with this. I want to thank our guest, uh, Saeed Hussaini. This was really great. You took us on a nice journey. There were so many other little topics that we could have talked about, the sort of way that there's some parts of the Nigerian elites who want to keep wanting us to go back to the annulment, they can't stop about the annulment, they can't think about the current mm -hmm. moment. Others, they just can't talk about that. They just want to talk about the viola. They get stuck in a viola. I wanted to talk more about trade unions. You mentioned Camila Huland's work, which people can read on the website. I also want to shout out, there are a bunch of other people who write about Nigeria very regularly for us. Um, Omaladi um, Adunbe, who I think you know, he's, a, he's a, I think he's a geographer or an anthropologist who's at the University of Michigan, wrote a really good book on oil. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a Noah, Noah Chika who writes about film and cinema, um, an American who writes about uh, Nigerian um, cinema. So I want to shout out those people. I want to recommend that people should go look at uh, stuff Saeed has written on Africa's country and elsewhere. Um, we've mentioned stuff on Jacobin. Um, we hope to see you back next week again. And um, I promise uh, I'm still struggling with my bad internet. But this is only temporary because it's where I'm at at, at the moment for the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you to our producer, Antoinette um, Engel. Great, great um, uh, production. Um, and we'll see you guys next week. Take it easy. Bye. Thanks, Sean.